Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 259A of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about your mysterious feedback on some of our recent episodes. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So let's get right into the feedback. Uh, first bit of feedback is some art that we've received from various listeners and fans, correct? Yes, and some of that art actually comes from you, Dom, because... Uh, you found a service online that makes miniature figurines, just like the ones that are used to play tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, only they're customizable. And so you had one done of me. And um, so so we have miniature Jimmy here. Uh, it's got the white suit. It's got the cowboy hat. It's got the long red beard. It also the the boots aren't the right color, but uh, <laughs> but but they're boots. And it's got a because um, I wear ostrich skin boots that are um, kind of orange in color. Uh, it's also got a large book that it's holding, which I'm guessing in a D and D context would be like a spell book, but probably. But I'm but I don't do spells. So I assume <laughs> this in my context, this would probably be a Bible That's or correct. something. That's how I saw it. <laughs> yeah. And and so uh, it doesn't have a pipe, but it's got just about everything else. So nicely done. And uh, miniature Jimmy is going to live over there with Lego Jimmy in the future. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. If uh, it's called Hero Forge and I'll put a picture of it uh, on the on our website, on the show notes so that everyone can see what it looks like. Uh, but I just, I, I was playing around with it. And it. Yeah. You can make D and D figures with it. And I was playing around with it. I'm like, Oh, you can make a beard, a long beard. It's got cowboy hats. I'm like, Oh, this, this is, this is definitely for Jimmy. So <laughs> yeah, very nice. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. It, it works best when it's uh, someone looks distinctive, has a distinctive look. And so mm -hmm. that, that was, that was great. So, um, then we also have some feedback we got in from uh, a young fan as well, a, uh, some artwork. Yeah, I got on contacted on Twitter by Dan Coates, who's a senior producer at the Babylon Bee, and he included a sketch of me that his daughter did while she was watching, I guess, or he was watching a Trent Horn video where Trent and I were responding to Gavin Ortland and his uh, arguments regarding icons. And he's got a comparison of me on screen compared to what she drew. It's got me on the screen. It's got a long beard and it's got a bunch of icons at the bottom of the screen. And for a four-year-old, I think that's a great effort. So congratulations to young Miss Coates. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Yeah, very good job. So uh, let's get into some of our other fee written feedback that we received. Uh, this one goes all the way back to episode 20. It comes from Elizabeth Howe via email who writes, Hi, Jimmy and Dom. I've been a fan of the show for a while and wanted to share a funny story. Recently, I was at a trivia night at a local parish, and one of the questions was looking for the name of the hypothetical planet that scientists used to believe existed between Mercury and the sun. No one else on my team knew the answer, and I wouldn't have known it either had I not listened to the Mysterious World episode about 
the Lost Planet Falcon. Getting that question right was extremely helpful to my team, and we eventually won the whole game. On behalf of my Trivia Night team, thank you for helping us get the win. I also wanted to thank you generally for all the great content. I've learned so much. I especially love the episodes on history and the episodes about Mirian apparitions. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, and congratulations on your victory. Very good. And then I would uh, I would I would I would give you a Klingon based <laughs> wish for, I don't know, disemboweling your opponents or something, but that could get a little dark. Or just a kapla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, which means victory I, in Klingon. Yes. We we need to do a trivia night somewhere sometime, you and I, and uh you can carry the <laughs> do the heavy lifting on that one. <laughs> uh so then let's do uh, our next bit of feedback from episode twenty one on weight loss. Stormtide Skywise on Discord, who, by the way, uh, told us on Discord today that uh, he just got married. Oh, uh, congratulations. So, to congratulations. Yeah. Stormtide Skywise and Mrs. Skywise. <laughs> That's right. So uh, he asked, question from a very old episode. I'm trying to lose weight and I'm employing intermittent fasting. I am also a regular user of chewing tobacco. I've read conflicting information online, some saying that tobacco's effect on blood sugar ruins the effect of fasting. And some saying that it that it does not have any calories or not having any calories makes it fine. Any information on that? Well, um, I don't think it's likely to have a significant effect on your fasting. I did some checking and there are some studies that can point both ways. But if you do find that you're not losing weight as fast as you'd like, you could always uh, either re decrease the amount of chewing tobacco you're using, or you could increase the amount of fasting you're doing. You could do a stricter fast. Excellent. All right. And then from our episode 24 on Dyatlov Pass, one of our most popular ones, uh, we got an email from Nathan who writes, thanks for your show. I'm a new listener and I enjoy it immensely. In episode 24, there was a possible explanation that was never addressed. Was one hiker a sociopath who lived for murder and I'll say other terrible crimes? The story puts me in mind of one set of Carl Panzram murders where wherein he killed, I believe, four crocodile hunting guides while out in the wilderness. What crimes were occurring in the areas where the Dyatlov Pass victims lived? It's not uncommon for terrible people to go to great lengths to earn their victims trust. What do you think? Well, um, I mean, there certainly are, you know, sociopaths that are out there in society. They're not common, but they do exist. Like we mentioned Hershey Green, um, the cab driver in the Iron Mike Malloy and the Murder Trust episodes who drove around fantasizing about killing his fares. Um, so such people do exist, but they're not that common. And when it comes to the Dyatlov Pass situation, I'm afraid I don't have crime reports from their hometown, so I can't say what other crimes were being committed in their communities. But I'm not aware of any evidence that would support this theory. It appears that all of them fled the tent without being prepared, all of them. Uh, if one of them was a murderer, you would think that he would get his shoes on before going on his murder spree. Um, we also don't have evidence of one of them hunting or killing the others once they got outside of the tent. It looks like they fell or died due to cold exposure or things like that. So um, I don't have evidence to support this theory, but I'm glad you're enjoying the show. 
And then on the same topic, Elizabeth S. wrote in an email. Uh, Hello, Jimmy and Dom. I'm a relatively new listener and began with episode one to make sure I don't miss anything. I'm glad I did because I just recently listened to your episode on Dyatlov Pass. I loved it so much that I shared it with my husband, and he came up with a theory that I want to get your opinion on. One of the hikers was a World War II veteran, as you mentioned. My husband believes he must have had some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder episode triggered by the noises of the wilderness, howling winds, rocks falling, maybe even nearby military testing. He either became a threat to the group inside the tent and caused them to flee in a hurry, or more likely, in my opinion, he cut the tent and led the group out saying that they were under attack by the Americans because those noises he's hearing are familiar to him, meaning they were bombs or other weapons he encountered while serving. Please let me know where the holes are in this theory. I've enjoyed talking about this topic and debating possibilities. Thanks for the show. Well, it's an interesting theory. In terms of holes, I can think of two. The first one is I, I'm not aware of any evidence that one of them had post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, people can serve in wartime and, and be okay or, you know, not have at least not have the kind of unmanageable PTSD that would be required in a situation like this. And I'm not aware of any of, of any evidence that he had a severe case of PTSD. Also, the second hole would be it wouldn't, to my mind, explain why they didn't just go back into the tent after they realized that they that they weren't under attack. Why did they continue to remain out in the woods in the cold to the point that they ended up perishing? All right. And then now on to episode 130 on lie detectors. Uh, the Higher Ground, Ryan Nassiger on disc, our Discord server writes, I remember a while back you did a show on lie, lie detectors, which convinced me to never consent to them. I was recently asked to do the predictive index as part of my work, which is a workplace personality test that some employers use as part of screening potential employees, which made me curious about the mystery of personality tests. Do they work? What do they measure? How can or are they manipulated to produce certain results? And can you or should you fake a personality test? Hope this gets on the big list. Well, personality tests are on the big list. Um, by in terms of their reliability, uh, they are not as precise, accurate, or predictive as they are commonly advertised. There's a significant amount of scientific superstition surrounding personality tests. I can't say that they have no value, but way too much significance is often attributed to them. Uh, some of them are better than others. Um, but they're, they, they are not highly predictive. All right. And then two more recent episodes. Uh, this is some feedback coming in on our episodes 240 and 241 on the Egyptian afterlife and mummies. Uh, Michael McFall on Facebook writes, fascinating episode. I learned a lot of new things about the ancient Egyptian beliefs. Amazing how different their mindset was compared to the Judeo-Christian way we are used to today. I look forward to hearing about mummies next week. By the way, I love the pictures and graphics on YouTube. It really helped to see what Dr. Brian was Briar was describing. Sorry. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And I encourage people to check out the video version of the podcast if they haven't already. Um, the the we're able to do things with the video by adding graphics to illustrate points we're making and so forth that I think add a lot 
to the show. I mean, I think the audio only version is good, but I think the video version is even better. And people can check it out by going to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, J-I-M-M-Y-A-K-I-N. And while you're there, please do subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you get notified whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I put out. I am trying to grow my channel, so I'd really appreciate it. And also, if you hit like on the videos, that will tell the YouTube algorithm that you like the video, and thus it ought to show it to other people as well, so it can help grow the audience. Our next feedback comes from Noah Seabird on Facebook, who writes, Perhaps they recalled their ancestors with a great sense of loss, and God, in his mercy, let them know they were still alive somewhere after death. So uh, the ancient Egyptians, like anybody else, obviously they would grieve their loved ones and uh, mourn, uh, experience grief at the death of their loved ones and mourn them. God does seem to let the dead sometimes have contact with the living. That occurs across human cultures, and it's illustrated by the cases of ghostly apparitions that appear in cultures all over the world. So God does sometimes uh, allow such contact. Uh, then uh, Nan Lambert Starjack on Facebook writes, really interesting episode, although I will confess to having mixed feelings about finding out how they remove the brains. Kind of a combination of cool and ew. Yeah, how the uh, Egyptian sons of Set the, who did the mummifications got the brain out of the body is both cool and icky. <laughs> <laughs> Then uh, Tony L. on YouTube writes, if the Great Pyramids of Giza specifically were built as tombs, why don't they look like the tombs of the Valley of the Kings? Why are there no elaborate glyphs or religious texts in the Great Pyramids? Is there anything about the pyramids or Sphinx in any discovered glyphs or religious texts? So we wouldn't expect the outside of the tombs in the King's Valley to look like pyramids because the whole purpose was to hide them. What the Egyptians discovered after building the Great Pyramids early on in their history was that when the government would get weak and we had what was known as the first intermediate period, they served as big signs saying free gold here. All you got to do is break in and take all the treasures. And so um, that led to the development of the Valley of the Kings, where you could hide uh, tombs, making them harder to spot. And also um, you could post guards there. And so kind of the point was to not be as obvious. I mean, maybe they didn't totally hide them, but they they were more hidden than here's a big monument that you can break into. Also, though, they did retain the King Valley tombs, did retain a connection to the to the pyramids because one of the one of the peaks, the mountain peaks uh, surrounding King's Valley looks very much like uh, a pyramid. And it's thought that that was one of the reasons that this site was chosen, because it had a kind of natural pyramid there. So that of itself would connect graves to the pyramids. Also, when you look at the interior of the Kings Valley tombs, you know, just the architectural construction of them looks similar to the in interior passages within the Great Pyramids or the Pyramids of Giza. Um, and so that's another connection. The Giza Pyramids, as far as why they don't have text in them, were made very early. And in their day, what were later known as the Pyramid Texts had not yet been developed. These were 
basically ceremonies or spells, they're sometimes said to be, I would just say ceremonies, that are meant to help guide the soul through the afterlife. And at some point they developed them and they got the idea, hey, let's write them around the Pharaoh in his tomb so that he has access to them. But that hadn't happened yet in the Old Kingdom. They either didn't have these ceremonies or they didn't have the idea of writing them all down for the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh may not have even been able to read. Um, he may have had, you know, servants do all of his reading for him. So it may not have occurred to them. But the fact that we do later get these uh, pyramid texts, which be, then became the basis of the Book of the Dead, um, the fact that we do later get them in on pyramid walls suggests that, I mean, it tells us this is a tomb um, other than so do other things like, oh, there's a sarcophagus with a coffin and a mummy. Um, but they would put them on the walls to guide you through the afterlife. And so the pyramid texts themselves communicate the idea that the pyramids you find them in are tombs. And if they're tombs, then the earlier pyramids that were built before the development of the pyramid texts or before they were written on walls anyway, would suggest that those earlier pyramids were the same thing. And they were also tombs, and this is just an earlier stage of development. Um, we do have writings that discuss the pyramids and the Sphinx that point to an old kingdom date for the pyramids, and they also point to uh, burial being the function of the pyramids. They will say, this is the pyramid where so-and-so is buried and so forth. Uh, then our next feedback comes oh, from... Oh, by the way, I, sh I should also mention, you know, we do have the little pyramids that surround the three big ones at Giza also are tombs. And we've, you know, found things in them indicating that. And even in the Great Pyramid itself, there's a big sarcophagus in the king's chamber. So even though you don't got stuff written on the walls, big sarcophagus suggests this was a tomb. <laughs> if there's a coffin, then it was probably someplace where someone was buried. Uh, then our, so our next feedback comes from Sybil Yap on YouTube, who writes, the Chinese do have paper houses, paper cars, servants, and money to help them in their next life. In order to deliver them to their deceased loved ones, they burn them. Centuries ago, they buried terracotta soldiers for their afterlife. Wow, some of these religions are quite similar. Indeed, and grave goods, things you bury with the dead, tend to be a, they're, they're a human universal. They appear in all cultures. Um, you know, cultures may have slightly different beliefs about why they place grave goods, but putting goods in a grave um, or otherwise presenting a good to the deceased so it can in some way benefit them in the afterlife, at least symbolically, that's a human universal. And then Night You on YouTube writes, I feel like the Egyptian concept of individual judgment isn't so different from the Christian particular judgment. Also, I thought I heard somewhere that work is a part of our humanity, that Adam and Eve had work to do in Eden, and thus the saints will have some kind of work to do in heaven. Is this official church teaching or just theological opinion? I'm not aware of church teaching on any of the details regarding the subject of prelapsarian work, meaning work that occurred before the fall, 
or of eschatological work, meaning work in the final state of things. However, both ideas are clearly supported in Scripture. Uh, God told Adam to tend the garden, and the New Testament says that we'll reign with Christ. The Catechism also speaks of us reigning with Christ forever, but it doesn't go into the details of what that will mean. Then Stevie on YouTube writes, Could there be further discussion on Dr. Breyer's idea that life after death and the resurrection came from finding mummies in sand dunes? Are there any displays of syncretism happening to the Hebrews? Thank you. I don't recall Dr. Breyer saying that belief in the in life after death arose from finding mummified bodies in sand dunes. Belief in the afterlife is another human universal. It's in every culture. So I don't think it started with um, with finding mummies and natural mummies in sand dunes. I believe, if my memory serves, that what Dr. Breyer said was the idea of artificially mummifying people may have come from finding natural mummies in desert graves. Um, in terms of uh, cross-pollination of ideas, it is not impossible that God used the Egyptian belief in resurrection to influence uh, Hebrew thought on the subject. You know, uh, there are, as you know, various early Christian writers like Eusebius of Caesarea said, there are seeds of the gospel in all kinds of different cultures, and some of them predate um the the writing of scripture and or are contemporaneous with it as this would be the case in this instance and so it's possible that god could allow um an idea that appears in one culture to have an influence on the on biblical culture where where you know if if Hebrews are thinking about the afterlife and they say, oh, so what do what do what do what do Mesopotamians believe and what do Egyptians believe and what do Hittites believe? And oh, the Egyptians believe in resurrection. Maybe we should think about that. And then God could reveal to the Israelites, like through the prophet Daniel, that, yeah, that's what happens. So there can be an influence here, but I don't have good evidence for that. So this is speculative. Then Anonymous sends in via an email. Jimmy, I have some concerns about some of the things said at the beginning of your podcast today. Although they represent the minority of Egyptologists, I watched a movie on Netflix years ago about people who think Egyptian history has been dated incorrectly. In addition to these new chronologists, some have reasonable and others unreasonable alternate timeline proposals. This movie points out that Ramses is mentioned once in Exodus in connection with a city, not a pharaoh. The Pharaoh of Exodus cannot be Ramses II because the Pharaoh of Exodus drowned with his army. Also, the Hyksos takeover of Egypt could would be one explanation as to the new Pharaoh's paranoia over the Hebrew population. I think the teacher you had on today is mistaken about Ramses being the Pharaoh of Exodus. If he were, we would have, go, have to go scuba diving to find his mummy, not Cairo. Okay, um, so we'll have a future episode on the date of the Exodus, and we'll discuss these issues in that episode. Um, however, I'd point out a few things right now. Uh, one of them is the Pharaoh in Exodus does not drown. Uh, that happens in artistic depictions, but it does not happen in the Bible. And so the idea that we would have to go scuba, dive, scuba diving to find his remains is is not true. Um, the city of Ramesses that is mentioned in Exodus 
otherwise known as Pi Ramesses or the House of Ramesses, was built under and named after Ramesses II. So since it says that the Hebrews built this city, um, that would point to ra- the reign of Ramesses II as um, as a as an earliest possible date for the exodus because if they're building this city under this pharaoh then that's the and there's then they're still in egypt they haven't left yet and so that would be an earliest possible date for the exodus and ramesses ii reigned for so long and we have evidence of israel outside being outside of egypt very quickly after Ramesses II with Merneptah that would tend to locate the Exodus during the very lengthy reign of Ramesses II. But we'll talk about that more in the future. Uh, then Martin sends an email. He writes, oh, oh, one other thing. The, uh, the, the chronology of Egypt has been confirmed. Uh, by modern computer studies. One of the things that, um, that, chronologists use today when they are uh, trying to reconstruct the chronology of a period is what are called synchronisms. A synchronism is where two things are occurring at the same time. So like if you know, for example, that Ramesses II had had, uh, diplomatic dealings with the Hittite king Shupiuliuma, then that's a synchronism. They're both alive at the same time. And these days, what uh, one of the ways that chronologers pursue their craft is by making massive links, uh, lists of synchronisms, which you then put into a computer and you say, how can all of these synchronisms fit together? And this is something that previously was not possible to have hundreds or thousands of data points that a single person could mentally manipulate. But computers could do it great. And so um, so we have not just a list of, of pharaohs and we're saying, OK, how can we slide this back and forward in history? Instead, we've got hundreds and thousands of pieces of data, and that really reduces the variability in in a timeline because you've got so many different points telling you individual facts and um and that makes the chronology much tighter and much more accurate than previous speculations about what the timeline would be it's it's very much big it's it's much more like big data number crunching than armchair speculation these days and that that use of synchronisms and computers to tighten the ancient Egyptian chronology has eliminated basically any responsible consideration of dramatically different timelines. You will find some fringe people like the patterns of evidence people who are fundamentalist Christians that are wedded to a different narrative that requires a different chronology, but their chronology is not supported by the data. Then Martin sends an email who writes uh Dear Jimmy and Dom, thank you very much for the series of intriguing interviews on ancient Egypt's afterlife and mummification. While you certainly covered much ground, I was direly hoping for you to ask Dr. Breyer about his opinion on the mysterious case of the cocaine mummies. That is, the series of mummies from different periods and in different museums discovered from the 1990s onward to contain cocaine and nicotine, which should, by standard historical knowledge, only have arrived in the old world during the Columbian Exchange. 
I've heard it theorized that since the dosages were so high in the mummies, it might have been part of the mummification process. What are your thoughts about it? Of course, if if you prefer reserving this topic for a whole show, which this mystery would completely deserve, I will not object. Thank you very much for your work and all the best. So we may discuss this in the future. Um, the test results that have been done are ambiguous, but there is some indication that both cocaine and nicotine were found on some mummies. How do we explain that, assuming that's, assuming that's true? Well, it's possible that this was modern contamination because cocaine was freely used in the 19th century. You know, it was not illegal. It was in popular medications and so like laudanum and things like that. It was even originally in Coca-Cola. And so um, because co and not only was cocaine in use in the 19th century, but tobacco, which contains nicotine, was freely in use in the 19th and the 20th centuries. And so it's possible someone spilled their laudanum or their Coca-Cola or was, you know, smoking over a mummy and maybe left some tobacco in it or something. There are there are ways by modern contamination that these two substances could get in the mummies. But then there's another possibility. Now, we think of of nicotine as coming from tobacco, which is a new world plant. It wasn't native to the old world. And similarly with um, with cocaine, um, you know, we think about that as coming from the new world coca uh, plant. But there are also old world plants that contain these substances. In fact, there are something like 23 known plants that contain nicotine, including celery. And we know that the Egyptians used at least two of these plants. So if the cocaine and nicotine findings are accurate, it could be because of plants that were native to the old world and used by the Egyptians. And we'll have a link so you can read some more about that. And then our um, mysterious uh, uh, feedback coordinator, Rob Leonardi, adds some of his own feedback. He writes, with Dr. Breyer explaining how he was able to use a cadaver for scientific mummification purposes, could you please elaborate a bit on how scientific research on a human corpse is not sacrilegious, disrespectful, or desecration of a body? Yeah, so thought on this subject has changed over time. Uh, the dissection of cadavers was once considered desecration, and that hampered both medicine and art. If you couldn't train doctors by letting them dissect a body, or if you're an artist who wants to learn anatomy, like Michelangelo, for example, um, you may have to uh, you may have to examine some cadavers on the down low because it was considered desecration to dissect them. However, it has subsequently been realized that one can respectfully treat human remains as part of scientific research. And you can also do life-saving procedures like organ donation. Today, the church does not object to organ donation in principle or to donating one's body to science. So that's a, considered a legitimate thing. There may, in a Catholic context, be a requirement of committal once the research is over. You know, after you're done with the research, you may need to bury the remains or cremate the remains or something. Um, but the gentleman who donated his body in this case may not have been Catholic. So he wouldn't be, if, if that's the case, he wouldn't be subject to Catholic requirements on this. And in his case, the research is ongoing. 
because he's this is an experiment that is meant to last for centuries. So um, so it does not seem to me that um, respectful treatment of, of human remains would preclude what happened in this case. And we'll have a link to uh, more about donating one's body to science from a Catholic perspective. And let's see, our next feedback comes from our episode 241A, which was another mysterious feedback episode. Anna H. on our Discord asks, thank you for the feedback episode. Since Jimmy mentioned the effect of the scientist's psychic ability on experiments, I wanted to ask, is psychic functioning considered something that has to be willed? Or are we surrounded by it and call it something else that we don't understand, like the placebo effect? So it is referring to what in parapsychology is sometimes called the experimenter effect. And the idea is that without intending to, and a, a researcher who's performing an experiment may psychically influence the outcome of that experiment. Um, and psychic activity indeed seems, at least according to the reports, seems to function without conscious intention. In various cases, that would be the case, for example, in a poltergeist situation. Most poltergeist cases are thought to be recurrent, spontaneous psychokinesis or RSPK um, that is being performed by someone who is inwardly frustrated and doesn't have an outlet for their frustrations. And subconsciously, they then start moving stuff around to just kind of vent their frustrations. But they're not doing it consciously. So that would, if if that theory is accurate, that would be evidence for non-intentional use of psychic functioning. Also, many spontaneous ESP experiences lack a conscious intention. Someone will be going about their business, and all of a sudden they know that someone they love is in deep trouble and they need to contact them. Okay, they weren't consciously trying to have an experience say, oh, I wonder what's going on with my loved one. This was something that was functioning, uh, it would seem, without conscious intent. And it's hypothesized by many parapsychologists that we all have psychic functioning happening all the time without us even realizing it. And it's been speculated that that might maybe why some people who are highly successful in life are as successful as they are. They're, they're, they're using their psychic abilities to navigate life without even realizing it. And it ends up, you know, they have the right intuition at the right moment. Oh, I want to do that. Or, Oh, I don't want to do that. And it leads them to be successful. It's even been proposed that the placebo effect itself, because Anna mentions it, um, may be driven by innate psychic healing abilities. If you'd like to read more about this idea, um, there's a book called First Sight by uh, James Carpenter, who's a parapsychologist, and he has this is this is an this would be an academic deep dive into this theory. But I can mention Carpenter's First Sight. His proposal is essentially before information makes it to our conscious mind, we've already been processing it on a subconscious level. That much is is agreed to by everybody. But he proposes that psychic functioning is part of that subconscious processing. And eventually, our conscious mind feeds certain information up into our consciousness for a decision. 
But we've got a lot of stuff going on in the background, and he thinks psychic functioning is part of that. So if you want, you can check out James Carpenter's book, First Sight, and we'll have a link to it on Amazon. Excellent. And then our next feedback is a bit of interaction between two of our uh, listeners on our Discord, Doc Sweeney and Shupi Uliuma. Who uh, say I love every hit at government caused inf- inflation, and then response: It could be a Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World drinking game. Yeah, and it would probably be a morally acceptable one because you're unlikely to get smashed uh, with that. I I normally only mention the fact that the government causes inflation the first time. I give an adjusted price in an episode. <laughs> so you might get one drink, but it's you're unlikely to get smashed. We could make a list of other uh, oft-used terms in the, in the show. You know, it's always aliens, always demons. Uh, maybe folks on the uh, on the Discord could come up with a nice list. Uh, oh, I, if you want to get drunk, I know. I mean, you don't need an excuse, but um, the... Uh, yeah, but every time we adjust a price... After, yep, could maybe two drinks for mention of the government and one drink for an adjusted <laughs> price. There you go. And uh, government corruption could be another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, our next feedback comes from our episode 242 on Rainmaker Charles Hatfield. And the first feedback is audio feedback from Alex. Hey, Jimmy and Don. This is Alex Silva from Massachusetts. I just finished listening to the Rainmaker episode and I just wanted to say I thought it was fantastic. The whole time for the you know first two thirds three quarters as you told the story, uh, I thought it was ridiculous and the rainmakers were complete frauds. And then you threw me for a complete loop when you discussed how their methods are being used today, creating snow in in Denver. Just fascinating story. Well done. Love the podcast. Keep it up. Thanks. Thank you very much. I always try to give a modern science perspective on the mysteries that we cover as part of seeing how much truth there may be in them. And in this case, yeah, some of the techniques they were using could have been having an effect, which leads us to our next piece of feedback. (laughs) <laughs> Our next feedback comes from Michael Parent, who sent in this email. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. I took a look at Charles Hatfield's claims from a statistical perspective. I've prepared a report with my methods, analysis, findings, and conclusions report attached. I would love your feedback on the report as well as to share it with the entire community. So thank you very much, um, Michael. Uh, I, I got your paper and I put it on JimmyAiken.com. So we'll have a link to it so other members of the Mysterious World community can read it. Here's the abstract of the piece. Charles Hatfield was a late 19th and early 20th century pluviculturalist or rainmaker who was purported to be able to cause precipitation by sending chemical vapors into the air and a practice referred to as cloud seeding. Though primary and secondary sources claim to give definitive proof of his abilities, no statistical investigation has been conducted to demonstrate the efficacy of Hatfield's work relative to baseline precipitation data. This article performs such an undertaking. By analyzing four different rainmaking events, the statistical evidence shows that three of these events did not produce a significant change to precipitation patterns, but that one of them did. Moreover, the statistical evidence shows that Hatfield may have been tactful in performing rainmaking activities during periods of drought, which, in the event of any precipitation, would bolster his claims and reputation, as well as planning the length of his events to coincide with expected rainfall intervals. Further discussion is supplied about additional factors relating to his methods 
and their results. So uh, Parent thus concludes that Hatfield's 1904 rainmaking efforts were ineffective, but that the 1916 San Diego flood looks like something that Hatfield really did influence. And he suggests that Hatfield tweaked and improved his rainmaking methods between 1904 and 1916. I think the paper is very interesting, and I'm glad to see this kind of statistical work being performed because it's what needs to happen in order to seriously evaluate claims like this. I'd welcome additional feedback from listeners who have a background in statistics who could read the paper and let us know what their thoughts are. Our next feedback comes from Sarah Conway on Facebook, who wrote, could this China spy balloon be a weather seeding balloon? We mysteriously had a freeze for millions of Midwesterners the same night. I don't think that's likely. Um, Not for a balloon to have large scale effects like a a freeze across the Midwest. Um, also, I I don't know how a, a balloon would drive temperatures down that way. Um, it didn't like release um, or cause massive cloud formation that blocked sunlight or anything like that. And it also wouldn't seem to serve an obvious purpose. You know, why would China do this? You you might want to test something to see if you can affect the weather in an enemy nation, but. Um, But that's risky. You wouldn't want to do a test with your latest, greatest tech that your opponent can then capture and reverse engineer. I mean, if you're testing out equipment to see if it works, it would be more natural to do it over China where you're in control um, rather than sending it over the U.S. who can simply shoot down your balloon and capture it, which is what ended up happening. So today we have the wreckage of the balloon. And so we know exactly what equipment it was carrying. And as far as I'm aware, it didn't include weather modification equipment. Uh, James Colin sent this tweet. Uh, this reminded me of a story from our friend, Father John Ray, SM, of Wellington, New Zealand. He was in Papua New Guinea, and the locals were rowing him to his mission. The river, however, ran dry, so they said, Pray for rain, Father. So he lifted his hands in prayer, and it began to pour. Not that much, they cried. So he lifted his hands again in prayer, and the rain stopped almost immediately. Fortunately, the accumulated rainfall was enough to get them there. Father is 91 now and only does online mission work now. We spoke to him last month and he sounded good. And while his rainmaking is impressive, even more impressive is his work in interceding for the healing of many, many individuals. Thank you. That's a fascinating story. And it reminds me a little bit of Honey the Circle Maker, um, who was a Jewish sage kind of around the time of Jesus who um whose story we mentioned in the rainmaking episode where he there was a drought he made a circle he asked for rain and he got a teeny little bit and said god come on i meant more than this and then he got a huge downpour that was very destructive and it's like god moderate rain please and then it rained moderately so <laughs> that's a good story i like that one uh only Jonathan, uh, only Jonathan on Facebook writes, I personally witnessed a similar incident or rather special power of a person they named as Bomo or Shaman years ago. There was an auspicious government funded event held at a vast beach shore here. There was fear that heavy rain might spoil the event, which was attended by thousands of people. So someone from the government related agency hired a shaman to push away the rain. And surprisingly, he did as he was tasked to do. I could see from the far horizon, dark clouds seemed to gather only at that part of the sky, but not at where the event was taking place. Well, 
Was this a coincidence or something divine? Jimmy might have the answer. Well, I have heard similar accounts, but I need to investigate them further. Obviously, God and angelic spirits can do things like this. Angelic spirits meaning both angels and demons. Uh, The question would be whether humans also have the ability via some type of psychokinesis. Um, So that's something I need to research further. Butner wrote on YouTube, I saw the title and thought, wow, Jimmy's running out of topics if he has to cover an obvious scam like this. I was wrong again. I've certainly enjoyed some episodes more than others, but y'all never disappoint. Thank you. And I wouldn't tell a story if I didn't think it had something fascinating in it. You must have faith, folks. Every <laughs> every topic, no matter how you think it is beforehand, is always going to be interesting. So, uh, And then Aloma Albar on YouTube writes, Napoleon also noted rain or snow after a cannon battle. This is a fabulous bit of history. Yes, and this has been a common perception among people who historically who have witnessed or participated in great battles, that there's often some kind of precipitation that follows them. You know, I don't know if we talked about it during the episode, but uh, there's often this uh, idea among NASCAR fans and people involved that the the cars moving at high speed around an oval track Mm. also causes weather effects. Um, so the, I don't know. It's it's probably a bit of old tale, but you know who knows. Uh, well, it it we've got lots of lots of NASCAR records and how many cars were competing and what the weather was. One could do a statistical study of that. I would love to see it. Michael Parent on the job. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then our next feedback comes on our episode two forty three on giants. And John on Patreon writes. Really enjoyed this episode as usual. I just came across an article about a 2.3 meter long Dakoken sword found within the Japanese Tomiomaruyama, bur- sorry, <laughs> Tomiomaruyama burial ground dated from the 4th century and thought it was relevant and maybe interesting for a future update episode, especially if they find anything cool in the coffin. So we'll have a link to the story that John sent so you can read it for yourself. And they did, you know, find this coffin with a sword. They had not at the time of writing opened the coffin. The sword at a length of 2.3 meters, that would be seven and a half feet long. So that's a pretty big sword. And the five meter long coffin would be 16 feet long. Um, My guess is that these most likely had a ceremonial function for a high-status individual. And the size of the sword and the size of the coffin were meant to communicate the size of the person's status, not the size of his physical body in a literal way. But we'll have to wait and see what they find when they open the coffin. And then Stormtide Skywise, uh, again on Discord, One theory I have with the presence of giants and at least the myths and folklore of Europe is that there was a tribe of people of exceptional height in modern Scandinavia. This is partially based on the prevalence of the Jotun in Norse myth, but also the Hyperborean giants in Greek myth. It seems odd that multiple people have myths of a giant race from the north. And we do know that some people in Northern Europe are taller than, say, people in Southern Europe. Uh, the, um, uh, The Dutch for example, are the tallest current population on Earth. Um, so it's possible that there in antiquity that there there were people from the north who were larger than average, but not inhumanly large. And see, WAP 248219 on Discord writes, 
I enjoyed the Giants episode. I think it would have been off topic because this episode seemed to cover primarily the plausibility of the existence of Giants in antiquity. But I'm also wondering what Jimmy thinks of other claims about the Giants being the result of Canaanite religious rituals, whereby a demon was invoked during ritual adult activity and the resulting demon possessed offspring having special powers or physical gifts as a result. There's another podcast hosted by a pair of Orthodox priests called Lord of Spirits that at least seems to partially endorse this idea in a few fascinating episodes. Spoiler, I think they're too certain of themselves, but nevertheless, a fascinating theory. I also don't mean to plug other podcasts, but they have some interesting topics. Specifically, I think they say in those episodes, it's hours and hours of discussion, I can't remember all that, that Og's bed was a large bed designed for these rituals. So I've, I'm familiar with the podcast. I haven't listened to it myself. I, I plan to, but I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, we discussed some of these issues in episode 87 on the Nephilim. So you might want to check that out. I have not seen theories that Og's bed was used for ritual mating. In the, I haven't seen that in the scholarly literature. Um, I mean, it's not impossible, but uh, it it, there's nothing in the text that suggests it was used for for those purposes. But, you know, I'm always open to seeing what evidence people can provide for their propositions. Then Antipasalakwa on YouTube writes, I would like to see information about the Book of Enoch, especially because another apostolic church out of communion with Rome considers it canon. Although the canon is closed in a reunion scenario, could we still say that is not scripture, but it contains no moral errors when properly understood. This is an interesting topic for me. So the church that Aunt Pasalakwa is uh, referring to is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. It considers First Enoch, or Enoch as it's commonly called, to be part of the canon of scripture. And the scenario that you describe of saying upon reunion, well, that's not scripture, but it, it doesn't contain moral errors when properly understood, that's not precluded by church teaching. That that could happen. But there are also other scenarios. Um, I did a careful study of exactly what Trent said, the Council of Trent said when Trent closed the, quote unquote, closed the canon of scripture. And it didn't actually close it in the sense of saying there are no other books of scripture. What it said was these books are sacred and canonical, period. It didn't say anything about other books. So there are other scenarios that are possible upon reunion. Um, however, I don't anticipate any, I, number one, I'm, unfortunately, I don't anticipate imminent reunion with the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. I think that's a few, hopefully it'll happen, but I think it's likely a few centuries down the line. And I th the church is also going to proceed very cautiously in this area. Um, one possibility, and and I would expect this to be the most likely initial scenario, would be to say, you know, back when we were united before the split, we didn't have, we weren't separated by the issue of the canon. It was considered acceptable for some people to honor one collection of books as scripture, and it was acceptable for other people to honor a slightly larger collection of books as canonical. And if we didn't need to be divided by that issue back then, we don't need to be divided by it now. So 
if you think that God has led you to recognize First Enoch as canonical, you can continue to do that, and we can still be in union, even though that has not been the received opinion in the West. And I think that's the most likely scenario for the canon, um, on, especially initially in a in a reunion scenario. Um, we also will be discussing the Book of Enoch in a future episode, so we will be getting you more information on it. Reuven Korf writes on YouTube, here's an interesting little tie-in. St. Ephraim the Syrian, who died in 373 AD, my beloved confirmation saint, was one of the strongest proponents of the Sethite view of Genesis 6, i.e. that the sons of God were actually the descendants of Seth and that they coupled with the descendants of Cain, the daughters of men. His explanation for the presence of giants is that the children of Cain were weak and lacking nutrition because they sought to get their food from a ground that had been cursed by God. They were small and weak as a result of frequent bad harvests. The sons of Seth were strong and powerful because they lived close to the borders of Eden, where all was in abundance. Thus, after the two groups were mingled, the children of the weak Canaanites were suddenly suddenly strong and tall because of their Sethite fathers. Well, it's not an impossible view. Um, I would say two things. The first is it's very speculative. Um, you know, there's, uh, for example, the theory holds that the um, the Canaanites were weak because they were trying to get food from ground that had been cursed by God. Well, OK, how do we know that? I mean, we are told that that would affect uh, Adam. And there's indication in scripture that the curse on the ground continued to make human and thus made human labor difficult in getting food. But that applied to everybody. Um, So why would the children of Cain be in a uniquely bad plot of land compared to the Sethites? Um, We we don't have evidence that they had a weaker diet than their than their cousins of the Sethite line. So, um, so the speculation, we are having to introduce differences between these groups that are not mentioned in the text. And also, my second point, I, I don't think it's a natural reading of the text. Daughters of men, without further qualification, would mean any daughters of men, you know, human females. And that would suggest sons of God is something other than humans. And in fact, we see that usage elsewhere in Scripture, um, where, at, for example, in Daniel, I'm sorry, in Job, at the beginning of Job, uh, we have this scene in God's heavenly throne room, and it says, and the sons of God came in, and they're clearly angelic beings. So it's, it, you know, I I am always interested in hearing evidence regarding these the interpretation of Genesis 6, but thus far I haven't found a theory that I think better explains it than the one we discussed in the episode on the Nephilim. Then we have James Campbell on YouTube who writes, Nothing but misinformation and blatant lies. Ooh, full, <laughs> full, spicy. <laughs> spicy. Full giant skeletons have been unearthed throughout our recent history in almost every state of the Union, 7 to 12 feet tall and taller with some with six fingers and toes, along with two ridges of teeth and red hair. Well, I'm very careful about the information we present on the show. Misinformation can slip through, but I'm definitely not blatantly lying. I'm I'm trying to be very careful and accurate. 
Also, all of the giant skeletons in America accounts that I've looked into, and there are accounts, but but all the ones I've looked into have turned out to be false. But feel free to send links to properly documented accounts of giant skeletons being found in America. Not just rumors, but something with actual documentation. Midwest Nagifa on YouTube writes, A little disappointed that the giant Egyptian from One Chronicles wasn't mentioned. Other than that, love the episode. Yeah, I'm surprised I missed him. Um, the giant Egyptian is mentioned in First Chronicles 1123. Uh, he was killed by Beniah, ben uh, one of David's mighty men. And the text records that he was five cubits long or around seven, seven and a half feet, which is within the range of known human height. Excellent. So that is all the feedback we have for this time. You, too, can send in your mysterious feedback on any of the topics we cover. You can do that by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to Mysterious or to feedback at Mysterious.fm. I need to update my script. Sending a tweet to at MYS. So, so, so say it, saying it slowly, what's the new email address? Sorry. I'll put it on the screen. Feedback at Mysterious.fm. Yeah. Feedback at Mysterious.fm. And if you're wanting to reach me in connection with Mysterious World, use that address. Feedback at Mysterious.fm. Do not email me at my other email addresses because it will make it harder for me to respond to you because I need to route the Mysterious World email through the Mysterious World email system. Yes, yes. Uh, it, just feedback at Mysterious.fm. It'll get, it'll get to us. We see yeah, it. We both see it. Yes. Uh, also, send a tweet to at MYS underscore world. You can comment, as you see, in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or call our mysterious feedback line 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 259A. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thank you, Dom. And while you're, if you're watching this on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification and hit the like button so that the YouTube algorithm will know you liked this and therefore will tell other people about it and help grow the audience. Excellent. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Quest.